Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hi, friends. Much going on at your place? Okay. We always say that Australian true crime is a show about normal people who suddenly find themselves in extraordinary situations. And if there's one thing we've learned over the course of meeting all of our amazing guests, it's the importance of human contact, of talking, and of being heard. So in this time of isolation, please stay connected with us. We'll definitely be checking in a lot on Facebook and we'll be doing some live stream hangouts again on YouTube, as well as keeping the weekly episodes of Australian True Crime coming. Because luckily, we've already started experimenting with ways to record interviews with people in different cities, like our guest today, Tara Schultz. It'll sound a little different, but it's better than the phone and it means we no longer have to be in the same room to record together, which might turn out to be a very helpful development. So anyway, Whatever you think about what's going on and whatever you're choosing to do about it, please just take care 
and stay in touch. We'd love for you to join us and join each other on our Facebook page to chat about the episodes and about whatever you're reading, whatever you're watching on TV, maybe share some cat photos. Who knows where we'll end up. Wherever we end up, let's end up there together. Let's not get too isolated, okay? Of course, we'll also be hanging out on our Patreon page. And more than ever, we appreciate everyone who supports us financially. We really couldn't do this without you. If you can spare a couple of bucks a month, please go to patreon.com forward slash pod. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I detoxed a few times, but it was never the drugs that kept me going back to him. It was an attachment disorder, you know, like I didn't have I didn't have anywhere to call home. And, you know, the most fundamental thing that a human being needs is a sense of home. I read an article not long ago on a news website about the ongoing cost of childhood trauma. Like the literal dollars and cents it costs an adult survivor to cope with the ongoing issues associated with being a child victim of crime and why those issues make earning a living so difficult. It's a vicious cycle that consumes generations and creates perpetrators out of victims with callous efficiency. Yet the clearer the link the less compassionate we are as a society to the individual once they've crossed that line. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. The author of the article was Tara Schultz, and she joins us on the show to talk about life on both sides of the line. My entire childhood has been marked by uh, abuse because perpetrators can recognise vulnerability, I think, particularly among like low, like poor children, uh, neglected children, and, you know, it makes them a lot easier target, I guess, than perhaps kids that are well looked after. And the crime that I took to the courts was the one, the last man who perpetrated against me from, I guess, like 12, he started grooming me to... 20, so it was like a long history of abuse and kind of struggle against that and trying to make sense of that. It's really part of the tragedy that perpetrators can see a vulnerability in children who've already been perpetrated against because it can give the children an idea that it's them somehow, that they are inviting it. Yeah, because that's how I felt about Peter. He was one that um, went to prison uh, and I didn't speak up about that for a long time because I believed that it was my own fault that I had invited it and I'd encouraged him even, um, that I had made the decision to do it. And alongside kind of poverty, it makes you feel like you don't really kind of benefit from the same rights or considerations that other people benefit from. Like we didn't like the police and we, I was exposed to a lot of police raids and stuff like that. So uh, you don't really kind of feel like you're a part of the same society as other people anyway. So, yeah, you kind of um, locked into isolation and, yeah, you just really do feel like that's your world and it's different to everyone else's world and, and that's your lot in life. 
So why were the police raiding your home when you were a child? Dad um, used to sell every now and then he would sell a few grams of cannabis just so that his habit didn't affect or impact us financially. He wasn't like a big time dealer or anything like that. He was kind of like just an anarchist hippie with long hair, a mild temperament. But the police really had it in for him because he never was ever charged with trafficking um, at any point, they could never find anything. So they just would repeatedly raid with the hopes of finding something, but they never did. So we were just targeted constantly, had to move constantly. Yeah. Oh, that's, and so that that's interesting that, well, it's not interesting, it's terrible that because of your dad's situation as an older child, you felt like you couldn't then seek help from police? You didn't see them as a helpful force? No, because they were quite terrible. They would come in, they would trash our house, they would beat my dad, uh, then take him away. And there'd be times that me and my dad would be walking. I remember one time we were walking to kinder and I was on his shoulders and they just tried to, they pulled over and started harassing him and he was like, Tara, just don't look at them, don't don't look at them. And they grabbed him and tried to, like, throw him into the divvy van, like no warrant of arrest or, you know, anything like that was read out. And I just clung to his legs screaming. And somehow he managed to not, he's like a thin man, like he's not very strong, but somehow they just couldn't get him in. Maybe it was like, you know, the crying child clinging to his leg. I don't know what they would have done with me afterwards, but... um. Yeah, it just police were, I just had a such contempt and resentment towards police. And, you know, growing up in, I guess, what, what I would call the underclass. So it's a class where a lot of the policy criminalises you. So drug policy criminalises you. So you're in the drug world and you're not allowed. There's a kind of taboo about speaking to police because they're the enemy. So you're not allowed to speak to them. Um, you deal with things internally. So usually like baseball bats, men would run through other men's you know, houses or beat them up or do other things. So you have an internal justice system in this kind of society that exists underneath the one that we, well, that I'm now kind of stepping into and the, the one that we kind of take for granted. Yeah. And I think from how you described what your dad was doing, Tara, I mean, he was trying to take care of his family as best he could and within the means that he had. And, you know, I think that also talking about that honestly can give people context who might be standing in judgment, not understanding the whole situation. But ultimately your dad was doing what he did because he was trying to yeah, he was help the family. Freelancing while I yeah. Yeah. in the gig economy. Like he was yeah. Yeah, um, you know, like he had friends that also smoked cannabis and uh selling a few grams meant that he was able to pr- provide for us better. And I really felt it, our whole family felt it when he when we were kind of forced to move so much that he was unable to keep selling. Like he tried to get jobs, which meant that legitimate jobs, which meant that we would move to like really remote towns all over the country. And his depression worsened because he was pushed away from his family and support group and his friends. And he was unable to provide for us. He was unable to really keep a job he had his own mental health issues and he suffered from pretty bad depression and perhaps some intellectual disabilities, though in many ways he was quite bright. He instilled in me a passion for politics and a critical mind and even though he you know, only had a primary school education. But, yeah, he tried his best but he kind of struggled with the world, I guess. And where was mum uh, during all of this? Mum suffers from severe schizophrenia. And dad took custody of us when we were about four. 
uh, he identified that she was quite violent towards me and my brother and also in her care I was abused by men who would also exploit and abuse her. So, yeah, Dad really kind of identified that he needed to take custody of us and take care of us because of her quite profound issues. Uh, and she's in care now. She can't live independently. There was one particular violent episode, wasn't there, when you were quite young? Yeah, well, yeah, Mum tried to drown me in the bathtub. Uh, I don't remember much of it. She also, like, would punch my brother in the stomach and just, you know, it just depended on um, if she was in an episode or not. Was she diagnosed when you were young? Yeah, so she'd been diagnosed since 19. Um, but the illness, you know, has just progressively gotten worse and worse over time. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, was she, was she accessing help for the illness? How was she going with coping with getting help for herself and with the little kids and all of that? I don't think she had any help at all. Like I remember she was quite isolated in some commission flats. Um, and that's where a lot of predators were, that would come in and hurt her and myself and took advantage of her, you know, and then her children. And I I don't recall any support that she was given during that time. I just, I'm sure you're used to this reaction from people (laughs) you talk to for the first time where it's like, ah, Ah, oh, slow down. Like it's it's just so bleak the story that you're telling us, and we imagine you as a little girl. And because you're so articulate now as an adult, it's we have so many questions. And then I think, oh, am I being rude? Am I being a tourist? No, yeah. I always like uh, encourage people because um, you know, even just in my social life and you know, on social media or something, because I do a lot of political advocacy. I'm like, even though, you know, this is a story, my story, and it's sensitive and it's full on, like, you can talk to me, you can ask me questions, you can engage because I want people to understand more about uh, how these things happen, the issues involved mm. with them, you know, like, it's quite actually therapeutic to be able to speak about it and to have your story heard and to have people understand more about like how these things can happen because otherwise how are we going to prevent them from happening in the future, you know? And frankly, we're used to hearing stories like yours in statements about criminals, about people who are applying for leniency and sentencing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've offended Myself, you know, we robbed houses when we were kids. We didn't steal TVs or cars. I was stealing food and any spare change or money that I could find in the house and then shoplifting chronically as an adolescent. And then I tried my own hand. I don't know if I should even admit to this. <laughs> like, at, you know, engaging in other criminal underclass activities to be vague because you're quite normalised into it and the trauma aspect of it. I'm sure that I've hurt many people who have come into my life along the way with my mental health issues and that can be quite hard. Um, obviously not to the same extent as Peter offended against me, but it is hard. Like, my brother, he is in and out of court constantly for various types of crimes like domestic violence and driving without a licence and stuff like that. I, I do believe that perpetrators should have their lives taken into account, even though I was a, I am a victim myself because I've seen the desolation 
and the lack of support and the lack of therapeutic interventions and the inability for people to get help. I think that we have a responsibility as a community to understand how this crime occurs. When Peter was sentenced in the county court, he was talking to his bipolar, but he didn't have a verifiable diagnosis from a psychiatrist, which is what you would need for that to be taken into consideration. So the judge did not take it into consideration. And even though I'm quite obviously hurt by what he has done, I do believe that the courts understand and recognise the patterns of trauma that can occur because I also want people like Peter and criminal people who perpetrate to not offend. Like, let's get them before they offend. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, you're you're reminding us that the same person can be somebody we consider a victim or a perpetrator depending on what day we speak to them and what particular topic we speak to them about. Yeah, exactly. So we should talk to you about Peter. Peter, is this the man that your father... So your father took sole custody of you when you were very young because your mum couldn't cope. Bless your dad. He was struggling as well, but he took you on. But then when you were teenagers, he he couldn't cope with you either. Is that right? Yeah. So dad, like he was, he's a good person, but he's not, he didn't have the parenting skills. And my brother and I were obviously quite heavily traumatized. Um, and so we were drinking, we were acting out, we were, dad had no way of coping or dealing with us. You know, he would be like, can you not have people over? Can you not have parties? Can you not do this? Can you not smash holes in the walls? And like my brother and other people would, he was quite depressed. I mean, parenting's really hard yeah. and I feel for your dad on so many levels. It's, yeah, he it's was really, very it's, isolated. It's so challenging. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is isolating. It. It's challenging. Yeah, and he sounds like he was trying really hard and we're working off sort of, well... None of us knows what to do. Yeah, I find it just, it's a very isolating experience. I think you're right and yeah. even more so for your dad. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of people do blame him and like have anger towards him. And I did have anger towards him for a long time. But as I grew up, I started to see a lot of the issues that he had and the lack of support that he had and the isolation and ability particularly as a man to uh, seek help as well and to deal with his own depression so yeah he met a woman and moved in with her you know he asked me he's like oh do you mind if I move in with my girlfriend he asked me not my brother because he just like I was daddy's girl and I was like yeah go like totally like I'll have free reign you'll stop hassling me about drinking alcohol he didn't mind that I smoked cannabis he just really hated alcohol but yeah he'll he'll stop hassling me about things and you know to do the dishes or whatever and so I was like yeah sweet like leave that'd be great but I I did try to reach out to him again when I was 16 because of the abuse that Peter was putting me through, I'd go to him crying and his partner, I think that she just didn't want his children in the picture. So when I tried to move in with him, she became violent, which sent me back straight back to Peter. Peter, who was Peter? Was he a family friend? Yeah, kind of. He ended up being my dad's dealer in the town we lived in. Yeah, so dad stopped dealing and he was buying from this man who lived up down the road from us and he would come over a lot with the other men that my dad smoked with. 
and uh, I developed a relationship where he groomed me to be more specific and he and I would spend a, like a lot of time together talking and I'd even go to his house and he had a girlfriend at the time but apparently it was just not considered strange that a 13 year old or a 12 year old was you know going to this man's house hanging out and playing video games with him and his partner and stuff uh, well yeah. I think the partner was probably a great disguise yeah. wasn't she because you you're going and hanging out with a couple yeah um, she, she had inkling she said to him you know if I find out that you've ever done anything with her I'll report you to the police and he, she said that in front of me you know she had quite a bit of jealousy not jealous it was weird I don't know she ended up helping out with this case though I haven't been in contact I sent her a message but she didn't respond but she did help with this case after after the fact oh I don't even know where to where to begin so I guess you spent a number of years in that situation feeling like you had nowhere else to escape to and no no help you can't go to the police you don't trust them you can't go to your dad he's in this relationship where he's sort of forbidden from yeah yeah I did end up accessing youth services at about 16, 17. My brother was diverted through the courts into a detox program and then he got out and told us about it. There's this kind of anomaly, I guess, where uh, young men are more likely than young women to access alcohol and drug services or youth services because they're more likely to be picked up by police due to criminal activity than uh, young women are. Well, girls are. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so we don't, so girls don't typically know about a lot of services available to them because they're just uh, isolated in these houses with older men that exploit them. And that's why they're also less likely to be homeless. They're more likely to be in, like, my story, whilst horrific in many ways, is actually very common, according to the data collected by YSAS, a youth organization. So, yeah, my brother brought news of this service to me and I was able to access his service when I was about 16 or 17 and they provided detox to me to help with the drug use that Peter was, you know, feeding me drugs constantly since I was 13. And I detoxed a few times, but it was never the drugs that kept me going back to him. It was an attachment disorder, you know, like I didn't have I didn't have anywhere to call home and you know, the most fundamental thing that a human being needs is a sense of home and a sense of attachment. So, you know, even if I stayed in refuges and youth hostels, which I did, I'd be have overwhelming anxiety and I was completely alone in the world. And Peter was all that I had, even though he abused me. And this is, you know, common with domestic violence, people in domestic violence situations, is that that's your home and when you leave it, you've got nothing because they've isolated you from the world so completely that it's a struggle to find your feet once you leave. So, yeah, it took a very long time for me to get out. But the youth services just, you know, they kept helping me like every time I needed help and I developed a great relationship with my uh, youth worker who I'm still in contact with today. I called him like last year. I was having a lot of issues. I called him crying over it. I was like, Warren, like help me. So it's amazing like, you know, that I'm still able to have this amazing relationship with that same youth service today who I work with still. So Tara, would you say that accessing the youth services was a stepping stone to starting to get on the path to different ways of living? Yeah, definitely. It helped me to understand that I could have a life outside of the ones that I've seen around me. Like when you're born into 
housing commission and poverty and there's crime all around you and nobody really has a legitimate job like everyone suffers from a lot of mental health issues you know the highest kind of status people are drug dealers and you know you you fail at school I was suspended 12 times and expelled you don't really see yourself being able to be anything else and as I said before you know like that situation with Peter and being abused it just seemed like my lot in life like the normal thing that young women do is attached to men who can provide them with what they feel is a sense of safety and security and food and shelter you know against the world like it's all you have it's out of the streets so the youth services helped me to understand that I was able to go to university that I was smart enough to go to university I thought it was very stupid because I got a lot of I failed a lot of subjects I did very poorly in school so I didn't think I was smart enough to go to university I didn't think I was smart enough to you know pursue the dreams that I'd always had so they really helped in healing me and you know encouraging me out of that situation and helped me see that I had a connection to community that I didn't see I had before, you know. Oh, that's incredible. It's an incredible recovery. I can't imagine how strange that lifestyle must have been for you to go to university. It's still weird, yeah. (laughs) Having not gone through school, really, and... I mean, you meet young people who live on the streets who'll say, I literally don't know how to live in a home because I didn't really grow up in a home. I grew up in the foster system or for whatever reason, I don't know how to set up a home. So how did you go about setting Um, up your first home? So after numerous failed attempts to leave Peter, I ended up with a really bad credit card debt actually. So back then you could apply for a credit card over the internet even if you were... Yes, I remember. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. like even if you were just like on, you know, like New Start, I don't know what it was called back then, they would just post you out a credit card. You didn't even have to go into the bank. So uh, I incurred a lot of debt, which I still, which still affects me, like I have a bad credit rating. And that's another consequence, isn't it, Tara, of growing up in... Growing up in poverty. Poverty. It's just another blow for yeah, people who are trying to like, get ahead. Learning how to, learning how yeah. to manage money. Yeah, that's No, it. no, that's fine because I had no idea. Like I got the credit card when I left Pete. I was able to afford flights. Like I went, um, you know, I managed to meet people online through... He let me play a video game um, which was like a online video game where you could talk to people uh, on a headset. So I managed to meet people through that game. Um, and I flew um, to meet um, somebody that I'd met through that game, you know, who said like their family would take care of me. And I like went to live in a share house, but I was soon evicted from that share house um, like because of the, like a vast range of issues really. Um and then I was homeless again uh, and I tried to commit suicide. I then, because I was living, when I was homeless, I ended up crashing on the floor of somebody's cabin in a caravan park. And, um, you know, this was like my first big real attempt, like my, um, I guess my longest attempt to stay away from Pete. But I didn't, I had no support for the PTSD or the mental health issues that were like pretty prevalent. So, I tried to commit suicide and then the caravan park uh, kicked me out because um, I disturbed the other residents um, with my suicide attempt because the ambulance had to come and stuff like that. Um, And I just called 
for you service again and I was like I need help and I flew back um and they you know put me straight back into detox even though I wasn't really using drugs during that period I identified that I was at risk of using drugs because I desperately didn't want to die like it's really weird when you're suicidal like it's it's a compulsion to kill yourself but you don't want to die it's it's I don't know it's really strange so I was I started to self-medicate because I was scared I would kill myself and I didn't want to die so I took drugs uh cannabis to just try to you know stave off that in that compulsion to die um and so they took me back into detox and then I uh, met another friend through somebody who I'd met through this video game it was World of Warcraft. Um, so who says that video games can't oh, be helpful? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And he let me, after a few like different couch surfing, he let me come and live with him and we became really close. He came from like, I guess, a middle-class background and worked at a factory and wanted to go to university. So I encouraged him into university and he encouraged me into university and we just just kind of lent on each other and still have like that person still in my life today. They're like one of my, they're my family now. They're my, you know, like my most secure attachment. Right. Yeah. Was that your first sort of positive relationship yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, outside of the um, youth service um, worker, yeah, that was my first positive relationship. And I'm so lucky. Like, I could have moved in with somebody who started abusing me again, like, and I would have stayed. Like, I could have moved in with somebody who got me to do sex work and I would have done it because I was so shattered. Like, I was so vulnerable. My developmental age was incredibly low because of the interruption to my, um, you know, growth and development. They could have done anything, you know, and I would have wouldn't have been able to understand how to put in appropriate boundaries. But I was just so lucky that I met this man who was just, you know, he was lost in his own way, like you know, working in a factory for so long, but wanting to change the world. And I was like, I was so political, and we just helped each other, and it was uh, fortuitous, really. Yeah. So, how did you go from that to where you are today? Uh, I'd started university and I'd met a researcher who worked for WITAS, the Youth Support Service, and she, uh, my youth worker contacted me saying, oh, you know, this uh, researcher is looking for a case study to accompany her research because the statistics showed that everything that had happened to me was, like I said, it was really common for young women accessing AOD, alcohol and drug services. So I met her and when I saw how common it was, and I said this in my victim impact statement to the judge, I was so infuriated, but also reassured. I was like, I realized that it wasn't my fault. Like, this is a pattern. This is something that's happening to young women from poverty. Like, they're I mean, it happens to a lot of women from all demographics, but there is like a like a significant pattern where young women who are impoverished, um, who have suffered neglect, who have been kicked out of the family home, they're more likely than men in it to be offended against in this way. And that's when I realised that I needed to speak up about what had happened to me and I realised that because of the commonality that it was not my fault and I was also studying social science at uni which helped so I wanted to speak up because I wanted other young girls to know you know that you're not alone this isn't your fault like this is 
this is a part of a greater pattern that is happening in society of trauma and poverty and neglect of young women being preyed upon and I wanted the courts to know and I wanted the world to know in the hope that we can address and protect young people from this happening again. After the break, Tara tells us about a painful conversation with her father. But first, thank you to these wonderful patrons, Michelle Richter, Nicole Campbell, Carly McClure, Kitty Wadley, Kate Murphy, and Brooke Parsons. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Tara talks about the side effects of pursuing her perpetrator through the courts. But first, her family also brings up a complicated range of emotions. Tara, do you still see your mum at all? Did you maintain any sort of relationship with her? Yeah, so during my 20s, I didn't, I, even growing up, like, we moved around, I never really saw her. So in my late 20s, I started visiting her. I felt really bad for her because she just lives in, like, you know, a care home and she has no one, like, literally no one. She has a brother in America that, like, calls her occasionally, but she has nothing. Though I don't have much of a connection to her, I realized that I was all she had in the world so despite everything um I really just felt for her and so now I visit her um as often as I can um we just kind of go for you know for a drive and get McDonald's or if she's feeling okay we'll go to the pub and have a pub meal and I bring her like I don't know whatever I can to like you know alleviate the pressures of living in a care home that takes like 99% of your income for like little soaps or stuff like that we don't discuss the past that much because it's quite upsetting for her and she yeah developmentally she's probably like around seven or eight so yeah I just go and keep her company when I can and your brother, we know, has legal issues often or ongoing, but do you have a relationship with him? No, I struggled because of his his own mental health issues. I tried really hard with my family. I went back and looked after Dad when he had cancer 
uh, even though his partner had been horrible to me, she was nice to me then though, I tried to help my brother but his temperament just was really bad for me and it just meant that I wasn't able to look after myself whilst trying to look after him, yeah. So you're practising some pretty pretty good self-care which would have, yeah, which yeah. you would have had. How did you learn how to do that? Through, you know, I've always sought help and that's, a you know, a major protective factor for young people, for anyone, is help-seeking. So I've always been getting mental health care plans, seeing a therapist, talking to youth workers, that researcher that inspired me to go to court. Like I have a great relationship with her still. I So alongside the youth services and the therapy, I'm able to like work through a lot of, you know, the issues that come from my past and to be able to have healthier boundaries. So I've been in therapy like you know, for the past decade. I think everyone should be in therapy, but you just sound yeah. like you'd, you've done so well with it. You know, you sound so enlightened and sophisticated. Well, studying social science really helped because that helped to conceptualise my life as, I guess, from the outside, like as a researcher, you know, going in. And at the moment, for example, I'm reading a book called The Body Keeps a Score, which is about how trauma manifests physically. So just learning as much as I can has helped to give me, I guess, a sense of separation from what has happened to me and to be able to understand it more broadly. Your dad didn't survive his cancer? No, yeah, he um, he, he passed away from, yeah, it was pretty aggressive cancer. Did you speak to him about Peter? Did you get the opportunity to tell him about what had happened? Yeah, I did. Before he passed, I told him, you know, he had no idea at all that I was being abused as a child or by Peter. And, of course, when I instigated the legal proceedings, that's when, you know, he realised. Yeah, though, you know, it's, a part, I don't know, a part of me still wonders, like, if it was okay to tell him or not to tell him, but before he died. But I ended up saying to him, I wrote him a card for, I think it was Father's Day or something. And I said, you know, despite everything, I'm still happy that you were my dad because it's made me who I am today. And I like who I am today. And I think he, he shed a few tears and I think it was a really healing moment for us. Gosh, that would have been an amazing moment for him after disclosing mm. that. For what it's worth, I think you had to disclose for yourself. Yeah, I know. It was just, yeah, it's hard because he was on his deathbed and I guess if I hadn't, maybe it wouldn't have been as healing, yeah. And so now you're a writer. Yeah. How did that happen and how does that help you? How does that work for you? <laughs> it happened by me crying into a bowl of Cocoa Pops in my pyjamas in front of my computer. Like last year, it was just the year after the court case had ended and uh, I was experiencing a lot of uh, re-traumatisation and dealing with a lot of the issues that had come about as a result of what had happened to me, trying to access services, a resurgence in drug and alcohol abuse and that kind of thing. And I saw, you know, just something on SBS about how 10 sessions with the psychologist is not enough mm. and they were examining that. And I was like, I don't know, because I, I'd spoken to another author, Jenny Valentish, who wrote Women of Substances, about how I could be like her because she wrote a memoir integrating lived experience with research. And she, and she told me, like, keep an eye on the news cycle and then when something comes up that you can talk about, like, 
messaged them. So I saw that come up and I emailed them and I was like, do you want a lived experience perspective? And then um, they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm writing an article. And then that just happened. I mean, I've always wrote, you know, I've wrote blogs. I kept journals, which we used during the court case as well. Mm. But I've always written, you know. That's such a good point that this this idea that, again, it's another way that people of low income are discriminated against when it comes to mental illness because Medicare will give you 10 free visits with a psychologist a year if you go to your doctor, your GP and get a mental health plan. But 10 hours a year is just... <laughs> Just, just doesn't scratch enough. the surface. Yeah. Your first visit is just a hi, how you going? This is me and this is what I'm about. And then another nine is just you're just not getting anywhere. It takes years. And then and it's years so to... expensive after that. It's like uh, what, 150 bucks minimum an hour? Yeah, minimum. Yeah. Who can and if that? you've got really complex issues yeah. like yes. me, um, so the therapist that I'm seeing now, because every now and then I change up um, if I feel like I've kind of resolved, we've got, I've got far enough with I had, you know, with the previous therapist or I need a different type of therapy. So my current therapist is 180 because she's forensic and clinical and specializes in trauma and stuff like that. And she's not even with the Medicare. I still have to pay $53 for a session. So if we put that out to two weeks and I'm on new start, that's $53. Then my medication is $70. So I'm trying to, I'm actually working on an article at the moment about the health costs of trauma, physical kind of health costs. But yeah, like you're just, it's, it takes so long and during, the court case so you can get victims assistance funding like through BOCAT but I was unable to access it because well during the court case because it would have been used against me like my lawyer and like the victims assistance worker that I had said you know if you do go to access or claim BOCAT funding his lawyer can use that in court so I was unable to get any funding to help me during a time I was being thrown right back into the trauma and your body reacts as though it's happening again. Like it doesn't, your brain doesn't really understand that, no, you're, that happened in the past. It's just producing all of the physiological changes in the brain and all of it, like, you know, which result in mental health issues. So I was being re-traumatized, but I wasn't able to access any more than 10 sessions and just going in and out of detox throughout the court case. It was just that period of my life all over again, and I couldn't get any funding or help for it. It's just not enough. And people from poverty and trauma need more than 10 sessions, even without my history, you know. So last year I was on New Start and I wasn't well, well I like started publishing articles that just happened accidentally but I have spent just through the court case and that being unable to study being unable to work because I also suffer from like trauma related illnesses including like you know PTSD and fibromyalgia which is like a chronic widespread pain condition and if I could afford the treatment that I needed I might be able to get ahead in life. No one wants to sit at home. Like if you just sit at home, like there's only so much Netflix you can watch. It's depressing. Like you don't, it's like so nobody wants to just get free money and sit at home. Like it's people want to have fulfilling lives. They want to be able to like live their passions and to be able to do what, you know, and to the workplace, like, you know, you're at work now and, you know, you have a, 
probably like a great relationship with Emily and you like enjoy what you do and it's like it's not like people are adverse like to wanting to work like even if it's de-skilled labor like I want just a routine in life like I want to be able to go to work come home like I would give anything to have that life just to be able to like have a normal life where I wasn't just staring at the wall like unable to kind of get the energy up to even like brush my hair you know the prime minister just has no clue what it's like for people in poverty to be able to get ahead in life and nobody wants to sit at like even retired people end up going back to work because you just want something to do with your days. But luckily your dad in all of this just gave you such a great grounding. You were obviously set up with great conversation from such an early age. You managed to take yourself to university and push yourself through to this place now where you're a great writer and you're a great thinker and a great talker and I really look forward to reading your work from here on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, me too. I feel like you've explained things to me and given like clearer than a lot of stuff I've heard. So I really am inspired by you. Oh, thank you, Nori. So I just, I, I try to do what I can with uh, the past that I had. <laughs> yeah. I hope you're going to write some books and stuff. Is that on the on the cards? Yeah, I'm currently trying to investigate my, so with my thesis proposal, I'm looking at how to increase protective factors for young people. So even if you do have a lot of poverty and trauma, like a key factor to resilience and getting ahead is to increase protective factors. So I'm going to integrate research alongside a memoir. That's the aim. Thank you to Sue Browning-Hull, Kaylee L, Deb Williams, Alicia Stewart, Anne Bishop and Renee, just Renee, for supporting us through Patreon. And thank you to you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, created in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We will definitely be back next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.